Hello, and welcome to a bonus episode of the Radical Thoughts podcast. Today, I'm excited to be interviewing James Turley, who's a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain, and who has contributed to the Weekly Worker newspaper with several articles on Alcusser. Turley gives us a nice rundown over the political situation going on during Althusser's lifetime, and provides a little more insight into how Althusser's theories develop. Right now, you're listening to 22 Ghosts 3 by Nine Inch Nails, but soon you'll hear Turley and I discuss the influences on and influence of Louis Althusser. James Turley is a supporter of the Communist Party of Great Britain, who's written for The Weekly Worker. He was once planning on being an academic with an interest in Louis Althusser, though now he works in computer programming. So uh, thank you, James, for joining us. It's no problem. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I wanted to reach out and talk with you because you had written uh, some pieces that they're a little bit old now, but you had written them with The Weekly Worker and... Um, I think there's a YouTube video of you talking about Althusser somewhere out there, too. Oh, God, that's terrifying, but it probably is. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been the last time I had hair this long, actually. Um, and I thought you, I thought it was interesting, because you were, you were talking, you know, within the Weekly Worker and stuff, so it was... Um, I, I was interested because you were talking about Althusser um, kind of from a more practical, I guess, standpoint, or a, about questions of strategy to some standpoint rather than the purely, you know, yeah. kind of philosophical debates about terminology and stuff like that, um, which I thought was more interesting than kind of those, you know, Marxology debates about, oh, well, does he say it this many times in this text or not kind of thing? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that was kind of um, my main, um, uh, like, interest at the time was uh, more the... Um, because I I've gone into sort of politics, um, sort of, well, I've built, I've built, I've always been kind of interested in politics, but um, I kind of became more interested in sort of getting into sort of communist politics shortly before I got interested in sort of continental philosophy and con sort of continental theory, I guess. Um, and I think a lot of what Altusa gave Altusa gave me was. Uh, uh, a sort a kind of he was unambiguously a partisan of the communist movement um but he was also engaged in these sort of philosophical debates and as you say like kind of in the actual literature over time the the uh, political side of it has increasingly sort of been sidelined and at this point with a couple of exceptions i can think of there are some sort of small groups in greece bizarrely who are kind of primarily altazarian um it's a uh, pretty much an academic kind of micro tendency and that's sort of the Althusserian world i came into when i sort of started getting more involved in that so it was mostly that it, as i was sort of become more politically aware um he were um i was i was um uh encountering somebody who was Unambiguously, a partisan in debates within Marxism in the in the French context, and a political partisan uh, within the French Communist Party. You could sort of broad. He's certainly a left figure on, in the French Communist Party who sort of drifted in and out of Maoism and, and and things like that. So that that kind of 
grabbed me because it sort of it felt like a bridge between where where a lot of two quite otherwise quite divergent sort of interests um that kind of filled different parts of my life um so yeah i became this sort of uh cpgb's like in-house altazarian for a while i should say that the cpgb for people who are not terribly familiar with it but is after all quite a small group um in one corner of the world um does not have like an approved theory like philosophy or philosophical standpoint like um notoriously in the 70s so jerry healy's workers revolutionary party or they all had to sign up to agree with jerry healy's completely incomprehensible mumblings about hegel which he published in a large book like we are we reject that kind of categorically we do not have a philosophy we do not have an approved theory of crisis capitalist crisis or anything like that um but nonetheless the prevailing tendency in the group is not altazarian at all um it was pretty much just my hobby horse and I was trying to, I was essentially engaged in arguments with some of the more senior, I guess, um, intellectual leaders of the tendency about the philosophical and political issues that Althusser was raising in the sixties and seventies. Yeah. I've, um, my knowledge of the CPGB primarily came out of people here who were interested in the, um, the Mike McNair, uh, Neo Kautskyist stuff on, on that, that kind of yeah. became a, a hit among certain crowds here. But um, I've I've always been impressed, even though it's it is small with the Weekly Worker and the debates, because of how open CPGB is about you know discussing things like that. Um, and uh, I guess so. What in particular about you know Althusser did you find um, was? I mean, obviously the you mentioned that that appeal of someone who was attempting to engage from with philosophy while being in political movements and political parties. Um, but what, what about his, his thinking stuck out to you and that you saw as having some sort of application um, to the moments you were engaging with? Um, I think um, the uh, willingness to like, for even his early work um, that he became famous much for at the end of his life, um, the, the work he sorry the work he's he issued at the end of his life is famous for being concerned with contingency and randomness um, and sort of random encounters in history a lot more. Um, but even in his early work, like when he would uh, he would attempt to um, sort of I guess cast a kind of critical light on the um, assumption that the, that kind of history proceeds through a, a series of like distinct stages in a very kind of straightforward fashion. Um, that some of the like the the fact that he would talk about um, historical situations as sort of involving kind of complex interactions between uh, I guess what he would call different instances that the ideological, the economic, and the political playing different roles at different times seemed to bring to to life for me like some of the uh precisely some of the historical situations that I was like learning about as a, a as a sort of young uh marxist uh activist um of course i mean you you guys uh, discussed on your earlier episode you talked a lot about the contradiction over determination essay when he has a long discussion of uh um of the russian revolution and and how it it's precisely the pile up of contradictions that sort of forms it calls it a ruptural unity, if I remember rightly, that um, that 
presents the possibility of revolution. And I can say to you, I remember reading that I was in the bath and just like almost like Archimedes, just like Eureka, this is it, you know. Um, and uh, uh, it, so there, there's a famous like um, uh, apocryphal story, I guess, about uh, Nadezhda Krupskaya that she went and gave a talk about historical materialism to uh, a group of uh, factory workers in St. Petersburg or whatever. And um, afterwards, uh, one of them approached her and said, but uh, Comrade Krupskaya, um, what was the advance in factory technique that led to the Bolshevik Menshevik split? And um, it seemed that sometimes you, you would encounter, I didn't want to end up in a, in a kind of, uh, in a theoretical frame where I would have to kind of answer that question. And of course, like, you know, though it's taken for granted, I get by, you know, Marxists throughout history, that like, you can't really answer that question, that there is not, uh, there is not that level of like simple mediation between sort of economic changes and, uh, um, the kind of contingent details of um, a particular historical situation. So for me, like Altazur was a, was an interesting way of actually confronting what that really meant, rather than you know as you know Engels or Marx might do, just say, well, of course it's not that simple. You know, we all know it's not that simple. But then the question is, oh, well, what is it? Then? How how can we talk about these um, more um, detailed determinations? Um, there was also a kind of I would because I had been reading a lot of the sort of French theory type stuff, the the other figures of that, like Foucault or Derrida or Lacan, um, I was inclined to scepticism about the meaningfulness of, like, um, uh, theories of human nature or kind of inve biologically invariant human nature. And um, Althusser provided a... Um, an, he kind he seems to... He agrees with the French theorists, but his arguments all for it are more on the basis of um, this is what he believes to be a kind of scientific approach to, to history, uh, as opposed to um, the, the, the undermining of the uh, Western rationalist episteme that you might get with Foucault. So it seemed to me to be a better set of arguments for that, um, which I felt instinctively felt to be correct. Um, and I think, you know, he talks interestingly about it, but maybe we'll get into... Uh, where um, he probably um, oversteps himself a bit there. Um, so there, there was a few things where, like, um, he was close enough to the French set without taking on their commit, their sort of anti-rationalistic kind of commitments. Um, science is a very, very strong note in analysis work throughout. He's obsessed with like, kind of, how can we do science? How can we, how can we do historical science? But also, how can we not repeat? Janovism, or, or not Janov, the other fellow, Lysenkoism, or, or, or things like that. Um, he's very wary of the dangers, um, uh, and um, and that the 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 ease with which kind of sci scientific uh, work can collapse into its opposite. To to use a Hegelian form, which he probably wouldn't like very much, but you see my point. Um, and uh, that that was. Um, and still is, I think it's some of his more interesting stuff is when he's talking about like kind of well, how can, you know, how does science happen almost? Um, he, uh, what's the relationship between um, uh, wider social um, activity and, and scientific progress? And 
how can we have a science of history of making correct statements of history means um, uh, taking a, a, a firm political position, which for him it does, because Marxism fundamentally changes how we understand history in Marxist view. That's, that's interesting, because I also, um, in my university history, was kind of, I kind of moved backwards from having, you know, more of that post-structuralist yeah. interest, where I was, I was reading Foucault, and I, I liked Maurice Blanchot a lot, and that mm. kind of thing. I never go around to him. <laughs> he, 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 yeah, he's, I like, I think, whatever, whatever, uh, uh, problems with his politics and theories is a beautiful writer and that's kind of why i read it yeah. um and then i kind of worked backwards from that and i was like what is this may 68 thing that people are yeah. talking about and i kind of went to marx and things um and then i was also interested in the frankfurt school when i was in college and walter benjamin and stuff um which you know and there's all these kind of and in university of course you know you're never learning very much of the political implications of any yeah. people whether I disagree with them or not. But um, I, I do have, I have a, I've always had a kind of tense sympathy with certain ideas about, you know, like maybe there is something like rupture that is involved in the process of history and trying to think through what, a, like what it means to have a real definitive revolutionary change. Um, and I, I have my issues with Althusser, but I think that that was that and the, the, epistemology that he tries to reincorporate into Marxism is something that I found a lot more interesting, just given that not many people seem to really attempt to do that and to be like, well, how do we actually try and figure out how we know what we know and and think through things and like, yeah, that how do you actually try and develop a theory that admits like there's not a one-to-one -one correlation between well, technology does this and then suddenly people behave in this way right um and i guess when when reading althusser i know i haven't read too much beyond we read four marks and i have his i have that reading capital which is this other you know early uh influential book that's from around the same period and then i read the you know the great mm. elliot yeah the book which, yeah i mean i would just like just as a shower i think for various reasons and like unpaid library finds and stuff, I have like three copies of Gregory Elliott's book on my shelf. <laughs> I'm such a hoarder. It's, it's a very, um, like, I think it's still, although it's somewhat out of date, it's still the best one volume introduction to like the sort of the, the like the political context I was thinking. And also, the some of the things that aren't really brought out, like his reliance on uh, um, rationalist rather than structuralist influences is like very strong in Eliot um, and uh, is more or less ignored by a lot of less sympathetic critics, I guess. Yeah, I I was super impressed by it. It really helped me understand. Like, I think, um, while certainly I think many of Althusser's criticisms of, you know, quote, humanist Marxism can be applied to what we think of as the major figures of humanist Marxism today. Like, and he does engage with some of them. Like he's clearly got Lukash, I think in mind and mm. he engages with Gramsci and Sartre. But I think, I think it's easy to forget like how he's, he's talking about like the post-Khrushchev mm. thaw and he's not 
quite as much engaging with what we think today sometimes as like the big figures yeah. of Marxist humanism. Yeah, I think it. I th there is a sort of. I think this is like one of the more serious problems in terms of like, uh, um, sort of how he conducted his struggle. I guess is that he so rarely engages directly with, um, representatives of the the other tendencies. Um, there's a. I mean, there's a kind of. It was unpublished in his lifetime, but it's come out since in a in a in a volume, um, like fifteen years ago, an essay called "The Humanist Controversy," which is never finished, but it's a kind of retrospective look at the uh, at the debate that built up around four marks and stuff. And at some point in there, he like in passing describes, um, I think Ernst Bloch as. Um, quote unquote, somebody identified with a ultra left tendency in German Marxism, and he means the Frankfurt School. And it's just like, it's, of all the things, you know, I mean, yeah, I've got his sort of ambiguous history with the Frankfurt School myself. You know, I'm, you know, I'm not a Frankfurt School person in any particular way, but of all the criticisms I would make of them, like ultra leftism, I mean, maybe Benjamin if you're squinting, but. Maybe like Marcuse late <laughs> Marcu life. Yeah, like I guess maybe he has Marcuse in mind, and and that would it would have been that period when Marcuse was in you know California and stuff. So sixty six, sixty seven. Um, but it, it's the there is, it is footnoted by the editor saying this description indicates that he clearly never read any of the. Um, and especially like especially yeah. Ernst Bloch, who was like in uh, East yeah. Germany and stuff. He was. He was more loyal to the, yeah. the uh, like a Soviet party. Yeah, he was. He was quite the Stalinist, as I understand it. He was a bit like kind of Brecht. I mean, Brecht famously wrote a snotty poem about the Socialist Unity Party, but essentially he was a loyalist. You know, he's, you know, he survived to live a natural death. You know, I've been to see his grave in Berlin, blah blah blah. But it's a sort of um, he doesn't really deal with Lukács. He talks a lot around Gramsci. Um, but um, he kind of blows hot, hot and cold on Gramsci, and it's kind of weird that like they both like he you know hit a course of Althusser's on Machiavelli is is in publication, but he barely talks about Gramsci in it. And of all the of all the places to, to, you know to engage with Gramsci, that's the sort of um, obvious one. And Lukash particularly is like a, is really missing is the, is the sort of absent interlocutor. So he talks about Sartre a lot. But um, there, uh, a lot of when he's discussing, like you know, the the thing, the the crime sequences, like historicism or something like that, it's clear that the important reference point is Lukash, um, and it's possible that he only knows him secondhand. It has to be remembered that history and class consciousness was out of print for a long time, and. I'm not sure when it would have come out, either in French or in, or again, like in the, it would have been available in the original German to, to him at the time. You know, the English version famously is like 71, I think. I can't remember. Um, I've read it about 300 times now. And I, I really hope never to again, but, um, it's, uh, it's, it's just kind of missing, you know, so it's left. So there are, there are good Althusserian or, Althusserian critiques, I guess, of Lukács. So the, um, Gareth Stedman Jones wrote um, um, a, re a review of it, of it in the New Left Review um, in the 70s sometime. 
Um, but Altadir is kind of Sartre. He does talk about Sartre a bit more, I think, partly because Sartre is a, is a contemporary political figure in France, you know, and um, is possibly of more relevance to him because of that. And, of course, weirdly, politically quite close to Altadir in some respects, like they both or people on the left, in or out of the CP, of the PCF, sympathetic with Maoism by the late 60s. You know, it's a sort of, they, despite, you know, the fact that, you know, Al-Tazir is incredibly rude about some of Sartre's stuff. Like, they, it sort of ends up, they end up in the same place, weirdly. Um, uh, so that's kind of what's really missing i think is sort of much a much stronger sense of like actual direct engagement with what his opponents are saying he tends to boil things down to incredibly condensed theses um which then he proposes kind of alternate theses in a kind of programmatic and kind of dogmatic form um that's just a, like it's not so clear in four marks but if you read like the first like his bits of reading capital it's it's like that a lot of the time, and, uh, and then there's the, um, there's a from his late kind of Maoist period. There's an article called the Reply to John Lewis, which is you know a reply to which is quite like easy reading, you know, in terms of the zoo because it's directed at kind of non-specialist audience as readers of the Communist Party of Great Britain's theoretical journal of the seventy or the seventies Marxism today. And it's kind of at intelligent lay people who may not be familiar with the philosophical debates in France kind of thing. But, like, he just goes paragraph to paragraph, like, kind of at the top, like, first line, John Lewis's thesis, and second line, the Marxist-Leninist thesis about, like, kind of... So John Lewis says, man makes history, and uh, um, the uh, Marxist, Marxism-Leninism says, the masses make history, kind of, you know, so sort of, and he goes through, pro, sort of slamming them down and it's that's the sort of clearest example of when he's doing it but he does essentially use that argumentative style and it felt a lot to like i think reading Althusser on his own is kind of a a difficult proposition because a lot of the more sort of um detailed argumentation i guess comes out in people who were engaging with them or who were students or, or collaborators um um, obviously, Reading Capital is a collective book. I don't know if you've got the the full version, which is I noticed you got the full one. I've only got the I've got the full one in French, which I thought ambitiously I might one day learn to read, but it hasn't happened yet. But I've got I've only got the uh, the one with him in Balibar. But yeah, it's a sort. And then you know you can think of like I think Machere is in there as well, isn't he? He had a he has a wonderful book on literary criticism called uh, Theory of Literary Production which is about the most Althusserian book name you can imagine, and so on and so forth. There you can think, you can come up with Althusserian big names in most fields of, of sort of inquiry in the humanities and social, like Poulancis or uh, Emmanuel Terre, a linguist called Michel Cachure and things like that. And they, they, they kind of, I think you sort of start to see more of the value of it in the better of those books, I should say. Um, uh, Palantis is a terrible writer. He's really, really mechanical prose-wise, but his books are kind of interesting. I think his book on fascism is worth a worth a glance. Maybe, maybe worth another glance at the moment. Uh, and um, yeah, various others. So that was it. Was always kind of more of a collective endeavor, which sort of goes back to kind of 
um, Altizer's like ideas about you know epistemology or, or and so on ultimately come down to the fact that science is not exactly about scientists. It's not about great individuals. It's a um, it's about engaging in a kind of in a in an ongoing process and work of production that's inherently collective. I think he he had the a real sense of kind of common mission with people who in some cases, you know, were like kind of either acolytes or like friends and collaborators, but in other cases were people who tolerated him because they were used to like Lacan. Um, you know, Althusser was very admired him very greatly and he, he has a shout out to him in the foot in a footnote and reading capital and um, claiming his debts. But, you know, and he, uh, when Lacan, he was always getting into squabbles and he he got expelled from some university. Like, his seminar was, like, cancelled at some university and, like, Althusser, like, sprang into action and got it moved to the École Normale Supérieure where he taught. And, um, you know, he was, he, he was um, always very kind of... Um, helpful in the, in those sorts of ways to people around him and you know Derrida delivered a kind of funeral oration after his death and things like that you know the people did kind of remember him but Derrida was not a Marxist he was not interested in becoming a Marxist yeah like Lacan was a Gaullist um quite he's you know famously maybe a little bit sexist or maybe quite a lot sexist and so on you know he wasn't a progressive in any meaningful sense um and um, Althusser's enthusiasm sort of didn't really kind of take account of that. You know, he thought like kind of Lacan was doing to psychology exactly to to Freud exactly what he was doing to Marx, kind of thing. Like kind of getting the real and so re return out. to Freud, return to Marx pair kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as opposed to the kind of the classic you deal with Marx and I'll deal with Freud deal with. Uh, oh, sorry, it's the other way around, isn't it? I'll deal with Marx and you deal with Freud is Foucault's proposition to Deleuze allegedly. And, the late 60s um uh was this really, yeah, kind of anti-Altazir Lacan thing I I want it I mean I not to cut you off I oh no problem I'm just rambling <laughs> uh, yeah I mean you've gone through so much like interesting stuff um I was going to say I think talking about you know reading capital um and what you were mentioning about Althusser's project being kind of collective um that it that is you know i always i've always kind of admired that book just even regardless of its whatever its uh conclusions are just being like man that would like i can't imagine going to university and a professor being like we're gonna talk about marx and like collectively write a book where we are all gonna yeah <laughs> it's a it's actually quite um a radical way to like approach that topic you know in in its own right and um you mentioned uh I'm terrible at pronouncing French, but I think uh, Mac Mac Macaray. Uh, I think I think it's Macaray. But I mean, I, I'm I'm terrible. At, I mean, <laughs> I've got some I've got some words written down here that I'm dreading trying to pronounce, but we haven't haven't gotten to them, so I'll um, uh, <laughs> keep you off them. But yeah, um, yeah, Macaray and blah blah blah. Uh, Rancière, I think was in that book. Rancière is in it, yeah. And just the kind of these figures who, like he he in particular. You don't hear about him as much as Balabar or Rancière, but like looking at his work, I was kind of impressed with it. And there's some stuff of his that just recently, I think, got translated by um, Viewpoint magazine that was pretty, pretty good. And like 
and then thinking about I I realized when I was looking at Althusser, I realized how much I'd been impacted by the way that his work had on modes of production had been taken by mm. anthropologists and things like that. Yeah. Um, like Maurice Godelier, who's oh, yeah, yeah. very good. And he, he doesn't necessarily call himself like a structuralist Althusserian anthropologist, but you can clearly see how that impact. Um, or I also, I'm a fan of, um, you know, Roy Bashkar. Okay. Well, I never got, never got round to him somehow, but uh, I mean, I should really, cause he seems to be in my wheelhouse a bit. He his theories of science. I I remember reading the Gregory Elliot, and he says, "Oh yeah, this guy is like very clearly influenced by Althusser," and it it just made a lot of sense to me reading it. And I think talking a bit more about kind of some of Althusser's approaches, um, at least in this early period, is he does an admirable job, I think, at that kind of trying to be like, what is the exact relationship between the abstract and the concrete, which mm. like the mode of production, social formation is one of his more yeah. obvious ways of doing that. And one of the more productive ones. Um, but also one of the things that constantly frustrates me with house with which I think Elia describes is mostly due to his spinozism is his, his constant attempt to make all these spheres like very autonomous. Mm. And you can kind of, you know, you just make a problematic of something and it has no kind of external reference, Yeah, which sometimes is very useful, but other times, uh, can be just very like I I, I remember it, you did a review on some I think it was you 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 did a review on some books on science fiction yeah, yeah. connected that to how as much as I I personally do enjoy reading Frederick Jameson mm. just as a writer of literature if nothing else but you mentioned how he picks up the problematic and it 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 becomes an excuse to kind of magpie your theories yeah. Just, this thing is a problematic of this and this is a yeah so so yeah Jameson's like um. He's, I mean, I, you know, I love him as a writer. I think he's a, one of the one of the best writers in in, in the English language on literature, like full stop. You know, of the twentieth century, actually still around, just about. Um, but um, he, but you know, in that sense, it, he's a he's a he's a marxist, and it's kind of weird because he ends he ends up in the sort of place that like kind of you would almost it's more expect a sort of Althusserian someone of that background to end up in which is this kind as you say like the his idea is that is what he calls a sort of meta commentary which is you sort of read the text together with its kind of critical interlocutors and that's sort of how you um, how you draw out the the essence of this kind of historicity you know the political unconscious or whatever as this book is called um but he got, he comes at it from exactly the opposite angle of like you know in origin he was from he was a Sartrean then he yeah picked, he's a yeah a Galian humanist yeah and then he picked yeah he picked up on Lukash and Lucian Goldman and he says yeah his his fundamental I mean I yeah I, I don't think he's actually terribly interesting on Luke, I mean he's interesting on Lukash on literature but you know he's not that I've got his book on his book on the dialectic which like most of his books is a sort of opportunistic assemblage of occasional articles and scholarly journals and you know he's not really that interesting on Lukash you know I sort of read it because I was writing a lot about him at the time um but he is interesting on Conrad you know or, or, or someone like that um so yeah for for Jameson like Marxism is is a cat is it ends up being something that can just 
you know, trivially absorb, you know, structuralism and so on. And he does some interesting things with that, but then it's sort of, you get to the end and it's like, you know, what's it all about, Alfie? Um, we're not quite sure, like, you know, how this then, um, certainly with Jameson, it's like not clear to me if he has a political project, except in as much as he's probably a fairly solidly leftish Democrat voter in, you know, Duke University or wherever he is now. Um, that's what, like, I think, you know, one of the, going back to the sort of collegial aspect of sort of, like, Altazare's kind of output and the, the sort of, yeah, let's you and me, let's you students and me go off and write a book together. Like, I think that's probably, at least in part, a function of the fact that they, that these would all be members of the um, student, communist student organisation. And um, although, you know, I would say it was not exactly like a guy who would go out on paper sales and what have you, he was quite a sort of academic and cloistered figure. This was the thing where, like, he was considering it his kind of political work, his sort of mission. And um, so I think there's partly what that brings out, as opposed to, say, like, kind of, you know, your modern kind of um, academic kind of situation that, seems to be getting worse and worse and worse um is that is is comradeship and solidarity um and i kind of i i don't i'm I'm sure like jameson's a lovely uh thesis supervisor but you know do you or you in a in a party cell with him like you know i don't <laughs> i don't think it's it's quite that you know i mean i yeah i guess in a sort of more it's a, it's a slightly dubious novel, but like kind of, I had like close sort of personal links with a lot of people in Platypus, the slightly odd mm -hmm. American organization. Yeah, they're strange. Um, you know, I mean, again, I don't want to be too rude about them because, you know, they're like friends and so on. But um, I think what they do have is like they do have like people who are active, they're very active, you know, campus focused. And there is a kind, there is some level of egalitarianism where, yeah, like if you are a first year undergraduate, you can, you, like you will engage in a common sort of quasi-academic project with like people who are you know professors and so on and they do get taken seriously and actually even though sometimes they do kind of sound like kind of photocopies of each other they do actually educate their people and so on and don't simply treat them as kind of you know sort of machines which is what you know i observed uh, when i was trying to get into academia like marx's academia in london at the time was very dominated by the socialist workers party and there was just a sort of enormous like gulf between like kind of say alex kalinikos's like pet phd students and just the sort of average like student member who was expected to just run around run around shouting about how racism is bad all the time like um i think you know altizer didn't treat his students like that and um you know, I think that's sort of commendable in a way, which probably improved the, the, the impact of something like Weed and Capital because it was like it's not just me with my giant brain, you know. There's a there's there's a kind of tendency here. I think that might be an interesting time to talk about how um you know, our discussion was only about the one early book, but yeah. kind of looking at how Althusser does have these kind of you know, he, he has stages and yeah. uh very Maoist <laughs> does, you know, self critiques and things yeah. like that. Um, 
and and you know obviously one of the big points of contention around his legacy is you know may 68 yeah and you know rancier one of his students who is still clearly somewhat influenced by him whether he admits it or not you know calls him out on that and yeah kind of uh attempts to go this much more ex- explicitly maoist direction with it and i i remember in in the elliot book one of the things about the one of the tensions about this air's work is kind of also his politics just being like on the one hand as you're you're saying i think he he's attempting to bring a kind of solidarity into an academic sphere that is very commendable um but he also that but his early work um you know i think it ranciere said something about you know there was a ten uh, 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 a dangerous potential to see it as like oh well the vanguard is just these academics mm. who are theorizing the science and then at the same time he then turns and gets into this more like as you said with the letter um the masses make history yeah. kind of volunteeristic um mm. it almost almost ironically it sometimes in some ways sounds a bit like lukash talking about you know the yeah. <laughs> point of the masses or something yeah. right um it's yeah it's it's um it's a it's a sort of longish process and i think like the the thing that roncier calls out there is like incredibly important i don't um i think i mean i'm not sure how close they were in the immediate run-up to the 68 events um and then like obviously roncier's critique um afterwards but um it's certainly like if you look at sort of the development of what Artis is talking about is clear that he is also worried about that. Like I think collectively as a group, they had to, so the issue is essentially, I mean, we probably have to sort of get a bit more into it is that, um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, it's the question of like the relationship between philosophy and science. So for Artis, the sciences or a scientific practice is defined by the fact that it has a distinct object and, um, it has a series of methods that it uses to produce knowledge about that object. And um, that kind of part of the object of those methods is always the previous state of the science. So there's a kind of internal development, but also um, kind of, it also relates ultimately to its real object, which is a bit funny about how that actually works in the whole there. But um, let's assume that we can solve that problem. Um, so then the question arises, well, you know, if we're so, if, you know, if Althusser is a philosopher and his students who are all philosophers, he's, that's in the preface to reading capitals, like, we read Marx as philosophers, that's, we were guilty of being philosophers, kind of thing, it's very dramatic. Um, okay, so then what's the position, what's the relation of philosophy to this? Is philosophy a science? Is it something else? And at that point, the answer seems to be that it's a science and that the importance or that it can be scientific, I guess. And that part of the importance of Marx is that before that, um, in his work, he found it, there was a double founding of a, of a, of a science of history, um, historical materialism and a, and a scientific philosophy, I think is the, is the other one, which is dialectical materialism. And he means quite different things to, other definitions of those things obviously but he thinks that they're both in, incredibly important and the and that now philosophy can be conducted on a scientific basis and its job is to be what he calls the theory of theoretical practice which means essentially a kind of way of negotiating the relationship between different scientific practice, practices um such that they kind such that they are able to c- continue sort of doing their jobs kind of thing 
Um, and I think there's a sort of irony there in that clearly what's at issue there is is partly kind of, it is like kind of insulating his circle from certain like what you could call like narrow Stalinist criticisms from the party leadership because they are oppositionists and they're vulnerable to being sort of squished um, on on the basis that you know that they're a kind of Jadan or vibe basis that their theory is inherently kind of formalist or something like that. So it's an argument that um, uh, scientific science uh, sort of philosophy is relatively autonomous from the wider uh, um, instances of society and implicitly from the party um, or from the, the, the party leadership. The, um, the other thing that is, is, is the wide, wider business of how, how can we protect the integrity of the sciences? So, like, we don't want, again, hack Stalinist critiques of Freud to... to divide i i guess um honest communists from what for outset is clearly just the um, the fundamental basis of psychology to be if it's going to be done properly so there's a in in a certain sense that i think those are what, what's driving him and then when it it becomes clear that the result is that it creates a sort of class of philosopher kings i guess he begins to be troubled by that and he initially starts to think about well, how can we, how can we distinguish uh, different sorts of discourse in society? So this is again, this is an unpublished thing again from the from the mid sixties. Sort of okay, so um, ideological discourse has a kind of um, sort of self evident subject, and he's kind of drawing on kind of Lacan to a point um, on that, like the or the Lacan's theory that you kind of that you sort of misrecognize yourself as a fully coherent subject kind of thing. Um, which of course gets developed later, and scientific um, scientific um, um, discourse. What's the subject of scientific discourse? And he initially comes up with an idea. Well, uh, the subject of scientific discourse disappears into the science kind of thing. So it has a science, has a subject, but then it sort of disappears somewhere. And then he realizes about three pages later that this doesn't make any sense, and he decides that science is in fact a process without a subject. And that the subject category of the subject entirely belongs to ideology, and so then it's a sort of th this he actually sticks with. He, you can see like references to it in the um, reply to John Lewis and so on. It's a kind of he sort of says, "In as much as I write anything scientific, it's like it's because I didn't successfully manage to uh, uh, to, to um, sort of." produce something that kind of outlives my own sort of subjectivity. I can't remember what the exact formulation is. It might be in the ideology essay, actually. But it's, um, it's a, so then science becomes a process without a subject, is the point. And um, then, okay, what's philosophy? Is philosophy a science? And he arrives at the answer, no, it isn't. And in fact, what philosophy is, is um, and this is where he's at the same time he's becoming kind of more Maoist. That philosophy is class struggle in the field of theory. So for him, philosophy has no history in the sense, in the sense, quote unquote, in the sense that a science has a history. It does not produce like um, in that sense, sort of a cumulative body of knowledge. It's uh, it is in fact just the site of an endless fight, and the fight is between two sides in all ages of philosophy, and those sides are materialism and idealism. And the 
task of the of the Marxist philosopher is to take positions in determinate philosophical um, situations or conjunctures, as the sort of Althusserese word for it, and um, nudge things in the direction of materialism. And in that way, the rule increase the ability of the scientists to do their proper work. But the job of but philosophers do not have in that sense, they do not generate something of themselves, which um, is of inherently lasting value. It is always about staking claims in a sort of ba- in a terrain, taking so, uh, taking um, points in a battlefield almost. And uh, this is, uh, um, obviously, I think El- I don't think Eliot likes this at all. I think he, Eliot basically considers it like sort of hyper Maoist. Yeah, he 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 refer- he kind of locates a half jokingly call it a, a break yeah. around the letter to John Lewis, where he kind of says that Althusser tries to correct earlier problems by going deeper into Maoism, and Eliot thinks that that is pretty much wrong all about. <laughs> like he he <laughs> the wrong direction. Yeah, he he kind of he's pretty he condemns uh, Althusser pretty hard for mm-hmm. Maoism, which I don't know, like you know. And, uh, you know, French Maoism, it's a little hard to say how much that's tied to Chinese yeah. Maoist thought, and it's all very complicated. But Eliot certainly seems to think that it was, it, it ends up reinforcing more of the problems he was trying to escape from in the first place. I mean, it's, uh, I guess, the thing that should be said about, like, kind of Maoism in France, and this is a, like, in, I've had, I mean, um, there's been a, a more int- more recent sort of debate in the, in the page of the Weekly Worker. Um, about post-structuralism, and one of the one of the people talking about it, he's a kind of sort of Frankfurt Schooly Hegelian guy called Rex Dunn, um, was arguing. That his argument was essentially that kind of structuralism and post-structuralism structuralism was um, was a function of Stalinism, and that post-structuralism was um, a a right-wing reactionary um, sort of revulsion against Stalinism by people who were disillusioned in the PCF. And, of course, the interesting thing about that is that it's just historically false. Like, if you look at the people who become, like, the key key, uh, sort of post-structuralists, unless you count out as it, I guess... um, the, which he doesn't. He th- he he, uh, he thinks he's a structuralist or whatever. That you you look at um like someone like uh, Yulia Kristeva um, or um, Roland Barthes, um, of course he had this sort of structuralist phase and then kind of grew into post-structuralism later. These people these were members of the of the Tel Kel group, which um, Kristeva I think she's married to Philippe Soler I might be wrong about that but Philippe Soler was a kind of the, the mastermind of it and he was trying to kind of pitch it to the PCF to be its like literary journal um, but when they said no he was he sort of rage quit and became a Maoist so they all ended, they all ended up in like Gauche Proletarien which is like one of the sort of major Maoist groups in the sort of 68 period kind of thing um and if you sort of look at the backgrounds of, of a lot of these people, they're either Maoist or they're like, if you go further back, um, they were met, um, you think of Lyotard and Cornelius Castoriadis, who were members of socialism, the Barbary, a famous kind of left communist group, uh, libertarian communist group. So um, actually, they're all coming from everywhere other than the PCF. <laughs> and uh, that, I guess, brings us somewhat to um, the 68 issue. So... Um, Althusser was 
essentially incapacitated and severe depressive episode for the whole period of the actual rebellion. Um, and afterwards, he sort of, sort of maintained silence for a while before kind of ultimately endorsing the PCF line um, that it was a very important mass strike and it's very important that the strikers' demands were met and the strikers' demands eventually essentially boiled down to some wheat tea reformist type um, uh, stuff that the PCF um, leadership felt comfortable advocating in, in the context. Um, so this is a it's clearly I think it's a it's a fa- it's a failing on Altus's part, partly because it's just not his politics. Like I mean, I, I'm critical of his politics because he's a Maoist, and I'm not a Maoist, and I don't think Maoism is the answer. There's a line in one of Terry Eagleton's book that it's like kind of you know giving up on Stalinism to um, become a Maoist is a bit like kind of giving up heroin by weaning yourself off it with crack, and it's a sort of there's a sort of truth to it there, and I it didn't. I don't think it did Kristeva any good. You know, in the end, she went to China, was so disgusted that she became quite right wing. You know, it's a, um, it's not a, it's not the answer. I know, I know, it's kind of more popular a bit now uh, with the with the millennials, but it's um, nonetheless, he was a he had positioned himself as a left. It's a reason Francia is so pissed off is because has sold himself to these students as a left wing figure in the PCF and in the end like he was he did not distinguish himself sufficiently from them I mean I think there is a sort of one has to be careful with how we talk about this this sort of stuff in the sense that like the existence of but the PCF get, got, I don't know, whatever it would have been like 20% of the vote, 25% of the vote at the time kind of thing like the idea that a few tiny, like that Guy Debord is going to write write something, scribble something down on the back of his Jitan packet, and that's going to cause a revolution with without the PCF changing is nonsense. Like that, we can talk about the PCF betraying the revolution, but then it's also that it was it was what it was, and it was inevitably going to betray the revolution. It was necessary for it to be actually swept aside, like completely replaced by something else, or completely transformed by people fighting within it. So the problem with Altizone in 68 is, and this is the trouble in the sense, like, you know, I mean, I got interested in him because he had this particular weird sort of our career to sort of, you know, philosophy and his political engaged. As a factional operator, he was terrible. He achieved none of his aims as far as I'm aware. You know, it, all the, his long-term influence, of course, is academic. It's not really directly political. And the idea that you could get he almost seems to think he could get around having to have a direct political, you know, opposition to the to the leadership of the PCF. He could get around that by kind of obscure philosophical meanderings. Um, is uh, it's just not true, and it could, and is almost demonstrated to not be true by um, by the you know the the, the the outcome of of Alter's career, where he ended up, you know, pretty isolated, really. Like a lot of his students ended up, you know, of you know, kind of more prominent sort of acolytes ended up Euro communists. You think of someone like Nikos Poulantzis, who ended up in a, in a playing a role in the KK interior, the Communist Party, the Euro communist wing of the Communist Party of Greece, um, which kind of, if you trace the history, is it became Syriza 
you know, years, decades later. Um, it's sort of, I think that's kind of why there were a few Greek health variants as sort of the Palancis collection, but it's, uh, it, there were many other things, people you could name that essentially drifted out of Balabar, I think is another one. Uh, you know, the, the Maoist commitments tended to drift off. It also has to be said that Maoism itself became a lot less attractive after the Nixon in China episode and after it became effectively a pro-imperialist force on the world stage. Um, and you had it, you had like kind of Maoist groups operating effectively as provocateurs in Spain and Angola and things like that. I, I've always meant not, I'm, I don't consider myself a Maoist and I have, I, I know a lot of the theoretical writings from that period aren't like translated anything I can read. Um, mm. I, I, there's a, I think it was Elliot Liu, who's kind of, he's more of a, a like a hardcore left com, but he has something about like Maoism can be commended for attempting to critique Stalinism, but it's trying to critique Stalinism on the grounds of Stalinism often. Um, yeah. And I think it, I think it's complicated in terms of there's, there's certain things about their comments on imperialism and colonialism that I think are insightful but then also hard to relate to what they're doing politically yeah. um but uh looking i think also one thing i was uh thinking about was um there speaking of euro communism is some of uh some of the stuff that i actually enjoyed the most uh when i was reading the elliot book and i i looked up some of the articles is i i think that one of my main disagreements with althusser is probably when he talks about ideology um yeah mm. in the podcast episode we talked about you know we we agree that it's worth looking at how experience and stuff imparts beliefs that can become ideological but we felt like maybe it needed its own kind of category and stuff yeah but um and he he has his his later development of you know the ideological state apparatuses uh which i think sometimes even though it has certain insights, it tends to sometimes make it that, you know, the state is everything and nothing. And you can kind of get into that yeah. Codian, like, you know, it's hard to really like determine anything from it. But um, he, he has a period where he has kind of a fun thing where he starts writing, you know, what does the communist party need to be? And he's kind of critiquing these Euro communist parties and later uh, French communist party on the grounds of them basically being ideological state apparatuses. And it's it's some yeah. of his more lucid, and I think uh, some of his better analyses when he's kind of saying like, you know, what what how do these parties actually function? Well, they they give you these lines that you're supposed to swallow, and they they play at oh we're we're super you know we're post Stalinist now we're we're open and and we we can have open discussion. What really that itself is a cover for kind of yeah. integrating these closed uh, dogmatic dogmatisms and things um his his final period which you kind of mentioned some of his stuff in terms of how he you mentioned how he has this view of all philosophy having this battle between materialism and idealism which i my i haven't read much of his his unpublished later period after he gets you know after he famously ended up murdering his wife during a schizophrenic bipolar yeah. breakdown and um was hospitalized and stuff uh and imprisoned um but he has a you know his kind of final stage is his uh aleatory materialism uh, yeah uh, where he really gets onto rupture but he ha but he he emphasizes that a lot more is my understanding in that 
that period. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there, I mean, at that, in that period, of course, he's abandoned like the idea that there almost is something to, that can be called a Marxist philosopher. Um, there's, I mean, the, the writings of that period, I mean, the note that there's a, there is a collection, which is, I think, the, the philosophy of the encounter, um, which is, you know, it's kind of, it's interesting because it's a mixture of different types of stuff, which, uh, the, the, uh, Francois Matheron has edited a lot of these sorts of things and a couple of them have been translated into English and that's one of them. And they include like things like sort of letters, which some of them, some of which are like just heartbreaking to read kind of thing. Um, it's all from him to um, a collaborator in Latin America kind of thing. I think there's a sort of, um, he, he's sort of always been struggling with the kind, with like what can be said about, um, you know, how, you know, in relation to how one, you know, one phenomenon is caused by another kind of thing. So he, in, in, uh, there's an extensive discussion of causality in reading capital, for example, where he counterposes what he calls structural causality to um, effective causality, which is an essence mediated um, uh, and, and causing something else via a series of mediations or mechanical causality, which is your billiard ball kind of Newtonian one thing bumps into another type of thing. And these sort of plants for structural causality that, that thinks of the sort of the effects of the overall structure that they find themselves in. And um, the trouble that I think he fundamentally gets into, and this is already visible in Balibar's essay and even Capital, is okay, so we're now in a you know, in a sort of capitalist mode of production apart from the you know, in what in the socialist countries, I guess. And um, heavy air quotes there, which haven't come through on the tape. And um, previously we weren't. At some point, you know, the the dominant mode of production in Europe was feudalism. Uh, okay, so how do you get from one to the other? Um, like, what is how, how do you get transitions? Um, and answer is, uh, and the whole that whole school, I think influenced by structuralism which is like methodologically based on not looking at things as sequences of events with a kind of logic through time but instead as like structures that have a kind of logic in the space i guess for some definition of space um they're very very reluctant to fall into what they think of as teleology and then as the French scene becomes more and more dominated by the post-structuralists, you then have kind of a load of people who are very influenced by like Heidegger and Nietzsche, who are even more kind of emphasizing that kind of inheritance. And Althusser clearly kind of shares that suspicion. He does not want to be... He does not want to, to, to be advocating sort of teleological reasoning. And for him, again, like it's a very sort of woolly word that can be, because it's used as a term of abuse, it can sort of be expanded to a couple of kinds of things. But he's kind of always confronted with like, can can we talk about politics or, or, or kind of political change in a non-teleological fashion? And I think in the end, the allegory materialism stuff is an attempt to sort of solve that issue, but it, of course, it's a 
it's one of those classic attempts to solve the issue that essentially just said, well, there just isn't one. You know, there are atoms that, you know, we take things Lucretius's image originally, said that there are atoms falling into the void, and at a certain point they swerve, and one bashes into another. And, you know, I, it's not an exact quote, but shit happens, kind of thing. There's a, this is like the, um, it's emphasizing contingency, but then the question is, Okay, where did the atoms get atoms get from? Well, I guess from other smashes. But then it seems to me that we're already at halfway back to a point where we do have, in that sense, an understandable chain of, of kind of causes. Either that, or we have we just don't have a theory. What we have is a kind of proscription. We have something. Yeah, um, if uh, if you forgive me, a sort of symptomatic silence. Like, there is something we cannot talk about. And I think this is, for me, there are kind of two essential core problems with Abster's philosophy, which is, and one of which, one of which is this, that, like, it is simply un- impossible to do serious historical analysis without falling into quote-unquote teleology as understood in this kind of mindset. We have, like, in particularly from a Marxist point of view, we have to be able to um, discuss whether capitalism's laws of motion or in a ascendancy or decline in a historical period to under, just to understand what's going on. And But in order to do that, we have to posit that there is a, a kind of life cycle to modes of production and that there is a kind of logic through time, that they are structured through time as well as synchronically through space. And that just disappears and the the sort of aleatory materials and stuff is simply saying like i it's more or less saying we cannot be historical materialists because it will make us teleologists like there is a sort of being a materialist means sort of taking positions that you know i guess it's sort of you know there's that famous at the end of wittgenstein's tractatus or whatever like thereof we cannot a speak there of we must make we must be silent kind of thing he sort of ends up there um and it's just in the end it's i don't consider it a sort of enormously fertile research program i mean i know a lot has been written on it you know in a kind of academic sort of way so okay fine but it's 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 it is kind of you know and sort of as literature it's kind of interesting especially like Again, I think the letters around it. He has a kind of a sort of prose poem called "Portrait of a Materialist Philosopher" in there, which is just a page, and he's just like mucking about, really. And it's just a, it's a side of him you don't really see very often, you know. I was going to say I haven't read much of his later aleatory work, mm. but uh, I I remember like looking it up and trying to find any sort of commentary on it that seemed like particularly, I guess, useful. And most of it just didn't really seem yeah. like I was like, okay, like this is just like a lot of talk about like contingency and stuff in this like weird abstract kind of way. Yeah. But um, I I was gonna say, yeah, I I find myself kind of frustrated too by a sense in which teleology becomes this ever broader, dirty word that wraps up any attempt to understand tendencies. That's kind of how I usually put it. I say, well, there's tendencies and they're not necessarily, you know, teleological in the sense that they're, they're reaching towards an end that's already prescribed, but that 
um, which I think is kind of funny because um, I mentioned Roy Bashkar, and I think in one of his books, he talks about, well, sociology is neither about, it's not a science about what individual people do on their own as individuals, and it's not about the, you know, just amassing every single individual thing together and just saying, well, that's the social. It's about finding the tendencies that occur on a level that we call, you know, society that determine things, but are also not just like the behaviors of individuals. Which is very, which is very like Althusserian in some sense, because it's like yeah. you know you have to find this abstract level that has real tendencies, but it's it's also an attempt to be like okay, well let's let's kind of escape from this uh, uh, language of not talking about predetermining movements in history. Um, it's kind of I, I thought it's a there's I think that there are some interesting ways to try and get around that, and I think Balabar too has kind of said you know he there's a lecture or something somewhere where he's talking about the English translation of the complete reading capital. And he kind of says, yeah, this, the chapter on how historicism is bad is the worst, <laughs> the worst one. <laughs> I think that there's, there's one, um, there's one thing about the chapter on historicism, which I do kind of, I mean, I think if we look at what it's a, directly opposed to i guess you get to something like the statement of lucas like the, the sort of offhand statement of lucas that if you look at like the the chapter of capital in um uh, on the on commodity fetishism you then have like all of historical materialism like everything and then also there's an argument of his that essentially uh, that pre-capitalist modes of production do not have high levels of internal coherence and their coherence exists purely in the th in the theory which is the self-knowledge of modern society which is you know uh, marxism i guess um and i think those sorts of arguments are, are problematic but not quite for the reasons that Althusser and colleagues seem to think and it's precisely because that um of the of the kind of life cycle issue that like um new societies come into being um you know from the womb of the old and the sort of the old kind of metaphor and the sort of having bits of marks and things like that and they're kind of heavily like that. i don't think you can um look at uh uh say um uh laws against uh drugs in this country and say well that's obviously the outworking of the fet of the commodity form like it's it's almost the opposite like the outwork and the commodity form so you just like legalize them and sell them for money you know it, that's capitalism right you know um but it does make sense if we think about it in a in a context where firstly we have the the world has been dominated by anglo-american powers for you know several hundred years and secondly, that the transition from like the last vestiges of of feudalism to capitalism in this country certainly, um, and kind of as a reflection, you know, in America, which was obviously just colonies or whatever, um, was done under the sign of, you know, vigorous Protestantism with a kind of ascetic kind of undercurrent. Like it's deep in our culture. 
and it's deep in our culture in a way that stretches back beyond what you, you could reasonably call the bourgeois revolution. Not much far beyond, it has to be said. You were talking about like the moments when it's sort of starting. But it's not it's it's because of the actual circumstances of its of its birth, you know, and and the the long and then of course the 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 uh the, the particular form that the kind of new class elites took and the particular ideological representations that you that they had. I think there is some value in kind of thinking of these things as you know, again, to use the phrase like relatively autonomous, like there is like Weber is wrong. There is no intrinsic connection between Protestantism and capitalism, except that the most advanced capitalist countries on earth um, happened to become fully capitalist um, under the under the domination of forms of kind of pietistic Christianity. So they ended up fused. Um, so this isn't exactly a, just a random chance thing. I mean, it, it, yeah, to a point, you know, I, I don't know how far back you want to kind of what what advanced factory technique gives you Martin Luther on that level. But it's um, it, it, we're talking about two distinct histories, which all narratives which have beginnings, middles, and ends, as it were. You know, Christianity does not come out of nowhere; it comes out of um, a historical calamity in the near ancient Near East in the first century. Um, and Roman imperialism and so on and so forth. You know, it, we're talking about long, the, a sort of um, a series of threads of history that come together in explosive ways, more like as you know, as you get in the in the full Marx presentation of it. Um, but that are definitely driving in a particular direction, and it matters that when what happens at the beginning of a long historical process, as opposed to what happens at the end. Um, and so the histor- the kind of everything comes out of the commodity form thing. I mean, I wrote a much longer piece on Lukash, and my problem with this precisely what comes out the other end is someone like Moshe Postone, and it becomes a kind of, you know, weirdly then human agency disappears from it again, yeah. <laughs> just in a different way. Um, it, it there's a there's a weird thing with kind of post Lukash kind of Hegelian Marxism where it, it either becomes kind of sort of Frankfurt School pessimistic everything is kind of working by itself um, and there's there's sort of no no freedom exists or you end up with like you know I guess the Guy Debord of sixty eight or um, uh, actually yeah you know some. Trotskyist groups today who think that kind of the revolution could break out any minute with a big enough strike, and there's nothing in between. Um, there's no sense of like that the history goes in kind of you know what they you know, punctuated equilibrium. Stephen Jay Gold's team, but the, that precisely like there are long periods of prepare of preparation. It's not the case that a single spot can start a prairie fire if the prairie isn't dry. Um, it has that there, there is. A need to think both together. I, th- I think it's that's both impossible from the kind of the things that Althusser is traducing as historicist, I should say, and from the kind of the pure structural synchronic causality, the pure kind of analysis of the conjuncture, and then ultimately aleatory materialism, atom swerving in the void that you get with the Althusserians. Like we need both. And, of course, what we also need is to acknowledge that humans do have an invariant biological nature and that 
political economy, particularly Marx's political economy, with its kind, which is based on analysis of the exploitation of human labour power, simply does not work without it. Um, and Althusser kind of tied himself up in knots on this. Like that's one of the things that's happening in the ideology essay is that he kind of realizes he's been lumbered. He's ended ended up giving himself a theory of human nature. He's just given it different name. And and he's trying to sort of almost prove to himself that he hasn't, but it, it doesn't work. It doesn't add up. Like um, there is simply no way, as far as I can see at this point. Uh, you know, as a young man, I was simply wrong about this. <laughs> and uh, as a young middle aged and well, as not as a young man, I guess as a as a good Catholic, he would have had a stable theory of human nature, but uh, in, in his early youth, but. As a middle-aged and old man, Altizer was wrong about it. And um, it's not to the credit of sort of post-structuralist theory, which, again, you know, I kind of still have an affection for this kind of literature, you know. And for that matter, the Frankfurt School, I think, you know, Adorno is a beautiful writer, although he's quite hard work. Um, it's it's just, it's, it was, there's something incredibly disabling about ditch, ditching it and, there's something also kind of conservative about it in a peculiar way that the that it kind of dematerializes the um uh uh this the sort of uh, exploitation and oppression of, of class society in a peculiar way it becomes a kind of game in the senior common room um and that's clearly not what Altazir has an intention you know again like you read the reply to John Lewis, you know, it's about the masses, it's about the class struggle in the front rank and all that kind of stuff. But if the class struggle is in the front rank, then um, we must confront the fact that the relationship between classes hinges on um, uh, exploitation, which in turn hinges on our, our basic you know what you would call species being in the traditional language our basic modes of interaction with uh, um, each other and with nature um and that's just you know i don't think you can get around that although many people try including it people from the Hegelian background and so on they don't want to be seen to be old-fashioned in, in the modern age myself and uh one of our other my co-hosts yeah, kind of said like when you when you get rid of any concept of alienation e even if you're not holding with the kind of you know frankfurt school kind of version of it or something like it's it's hard to see what like you you kind of start losing sight of like well what is it about capitalism that feels so degrading you lose the sense of like what is is really burdening people about the system to some extent yeah, yeah. i mean yeah the kind the sort of the, the i guess the sort of tragic dimension of it almost or the kind of ethical dimension say um it, there's it's yeah it seems to me that that you know i may have uh um you know taken a very intellectual-ish sort of intellectualizing path into a lot of this material but I think, you know, in that sense, most people who become kind of partisans of the left of the, or, or of Marxism or, or, you know, or reacting to stuff that just ultimately feels wrong. And for me, it was, you know, the Iraq war. You know, as a 16-year-old, I went on, you know, the large demo in London. And then, of course, you know, we lost. And 
and it and it and it was supposed it was supposed to be my lot. It was the Labour Party doing it, right? So, what what was going on, kind of thing. But it it was just like feeling completely alone, you know, um, in in this country, the Liberal Democrat Party, which is the sort of yeah the Liberal Party, as it suggests, supported the anti-war movement. Of course, until the exact until the moment that the troops went in, <laughs> right? And then, of course, they would they were rigorously state loyalist. And so they would, you know, they would sort of chivy around and point out that they'd opposed it. But in that sense, like, kind of, okay, are you going to move an early day motion to, like, withdraw them? It's like, no, you know, we support our troops. Kind of thing. So it, it was just sort of the, the, the world, the, that kind of political world just dissolved out from under me kind of thing. And, and it was just, again, growing up in a military town, as I did as well. It was so alienating. <laughs> I think that's, you know, obviously a big part of, you know, what drove me towards these sort of people. And then it just, there's a sort of performative contradiction and then purely treating things as very, uh, as sort of purely kind of abstract propositions and trying to like completely dig your way out of that. Like, I mean, I know you can, I know you could have like a concept of, of that sort of, you know, transformation. Um, but, there's um, always going to be some dimension of actual political work that escapes it. That in, you know, in the end, like you, you must act like you are a humanist yeah. <laughs> um, if you're going to go out and sort of um, be able to talk to people and get them involved in politics and you know, you know, form them into sort of Marxist cadre. Um, and then that seems to me now much more to be a kind of a problem. Not not that I'm going to like sort of romanticize myself politically. You know, I live quite a sort of cloistered life, really. But it, it seems to me that it would be kind of weirdly self contradictory to, in one sphere of life, sort of declare that there is there is no such thing as you know man, as they would say in the sixties, and humanity, as we should say now. Um, but there is. There were the masses. There were no subjects. There was, you know, it seems to me to um, reflect more. You know, again, you know, going back to sort of intervention in this conjuncture or whatever, it seems very much to reflect the kind of the particular way philosophical forces in the rise of structuralism in the French Academy in the sixties, and then of post-structuralism in France and elsewhere than it does of. Um, a uh, a sort of political revival, I guess, like a, a sort of Marxist revival, and I guess the trouble is precisely that the political context. Then, of course, is that the the Marxist humanists are associated with the right of the PCF in that era, so it sort of makes it all too easy, I think. Um, but uh, you know, it's still like from we have hindsight, you know, and we have um, the subsequent extensive literature so it's a sort of for you know for in terms of four marks you know it's a it's a kind of it's definitely the most readable part of the early Althusserian Uber and it sets out his thought like fairly clearly um even to the point where the introduction is like already criticizing himself and saying i was wrong about that i was wrong about this it's like yes it's very very much a good introduction to Althusser on that front but uh it's definitely a document of its time and making it work now must involve like you know make it taking parts of it i guess must involve like serious you know critical work to understand right what actually stands up 
Well, we've been talking for an hour, 20 minutes now, and I think that's a, okay. <laughs> that's a, a, a very, you know, bringing it back to the text. Um, is there anything else that you would like to say or just mention about like if other, if people want to try and do that work on Althusser, are there other, you know, aside from like Elliot, is there anything else you would point people towards? I, I mean, I, I think it might be out of print now, which is a bit disappointing, but the, um, the collection that, um, uh, Francois Matelon and the translation Jeffrey Goshkarian put out before the aleatory materialism one is called The Humanist Controversy in Other Writings. And I've mentioned um, a couple of them in the course of this. And I think that's, that's kind of interesting. And Goshkarian's introduction is very, very good about like how he's like precisely the stages in which like he's changing. And those guys are very interested in the aleatory materialism stuff. So the, so the emphasis is like, this is the first mention of the encounter in like 1967 or something. But it's still very good on that. There was also, and I am going to force myself to pronounce a French word I can't really pronounce. There's also a kind of, um, there's an incident, I think it's 66, 67, which was the, um, the French Communist Party. There was such a rage on about Alters, about Alters' theories. It was becoming, there was a vast controversy. So the French Communist Party decided that they would all go to um, uh, out to uh, Argentuy, I think is the best I'm going to do, which is so, one of these places, I guess, almost like Versailles, like a kind of town near Paris or something. And they would have a philosophical conference to sort of sort everything out. And it's this kind of great showdown between um, Alter wasn't there, but supporters of Alter and um, uh, Roger Galoli, who was uh, at the time a kind of leading. Marxist humanist intellectual, he converted to Catholicism at yeah. that time. Became a Holocaust then, denier, I believe. It became a yeah, an Islamist Holocaust denier later on, which is a peculiar character. Um, but basically, but essentially, the um, Louis Aragon, the surrealist um, luminary, negotiated a kind of compromise statement, which sort of you know gave Garodi a slap and gave Alcer a slap. And Alza wrote but never sent a furious letter denouncing it. And this was published in the Historical Materialism Journal a few years back with an introduction by a guy called William Lewis, I think. Um, which is also worth it's worth reading because it's kind of like it gives you a flavour of actually of what it was actually like to sort in that sense be a, a prominent intellectual with sort of distinctive theories and f- friends among the Maoist youth of the French communist student organization. It could be quite hard work. And I think that gives you more of a flavor of like actually what it was, um, you know, what was at stake for the kind of contestants, which it wasn't like kind of precisely wasn't in that sense just an abstract debate about human nature that you're dealing with as kind of um, a sort of, yeah, over determined kind of mess of like political lines and philosophical elements and so on. Um, but apart from that, I mean, yeah, Elliot's book is great. Um, uh, trying to think what else. I mean, there's just there's there's just a lot of material available. There's, I mean, you're gonna come you're gonna come across a reply to John Lewis if you keep doing this podcast for another two years or something, because <laughs> <laughs> that's in the that's in the third lot, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, there's um, the cheap the cheapo stuff in the radical thinkers is pretty good cross-section of the important material quite a bit of his work is in um yeah 
I think I think they had one in each of the first four lots. I can't remember what the fourth one was, but yeah, there's there's a sort of good mixture. Um, this bizarre. I mean, in terms of bizarre stuff, there's I haven't read it. I bought it, but um, it's just sitting on my shelf like so many other things. But somebody did do a collection entitled Altazir and Theology, which seems on a on a, gl- on a sort of uh, first glance seems to be making an awful lot of hay out of about 20 pages of text from 1948 that he wrote when he was just about still a Catholic. Um, but it's something, you know, there's, um, as a sort of reminder that, like, he did come from a completely different intellectual culture, and then initially when he became kind of Marxist, he was very much a gay, and he was something under John, John Lippolite. So there's a collection of that material as well, which I think is from Sepp's, 97. Um, I can't vouch for it because I haven't read it in detail. I suspect you'd find it wasn't enormous. It would be what you'd expect the rhymes of a fellow traveller with kind of religious leanings of the late 40s, but, um, you know, kind of as another angle on it. And There's a lot of sort of... You hit, you come across a lot of the sort of idea, oh, well, he never really read this lot, and he never really read that lot. And I think in some cases that's true with the Frankfurt School, for example, but it's certainly not true that he never really read Hegel. Or Feuerbach. Um, there's arguments a lot about Marx. He often claims that he never read much Marx, but he often self misrepresents on these sorts of things. Like he claimed never to have read any Lacan, and then when he died and they were clearing out a study, they found this enormously comp- huge, like, annotated like edition of uh, of, of like Lacan's like, like he clearly had read it. You know, he just he just claimed that he hadn't because he would go through kind of bouts of suicidal self disbelief. Um, so it's a sort of it's more of a kind of glance of like where he came from and that, that the weirdness of post-war French society and the kind of the enormous crisis that the experience of the war and the resistance and so on actually had I think that's what gets me you know again we just talk about these kind of as interesting philosophical figures but we kind of lose the um, uh, the, 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 the sort of history of you know how, how it could come to be that these also, and various other bizarre intellectuals of the front of the fifties and sixties of France could have almost existed, you know, in one place. Um, again, I can't, you know, if I think about anything else, I can, I can email you and you can solemnly read it out yeah. at the end. But, um. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, I think we've gone. I mean, we've gone through a, a ton of stuff, and it's been great talking to you because, like, you just have uh, clear, clearly, a lot of insight into what is going on with these like periods and debates and stuff. So thank you so much again for coming on, being wi- willing to talk about this. Oh, it's, it's never been a pleasure. Um, and good luck with the next um, 300 books that you've got. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're, you're doing minimum morality. At least that's a, that's least fun. Thank you for joining us on this bonus episode of Radical Thoughts. Remember that our next episode will be on Theodore Adorno's Minima Moralia if you want to be reading along. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter, where we'll post memes and updates as we go along. Radical Thoughts is an independent project and is in no way associated with Verso Books. Thank you, and we hope you'll join us next time.